from the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge, the show that invites scholars, makers, and professionals out to brunch for an informal conversation about their work. I'm your host, Ted Fox. If you're a regular listener, you know this is where I usually tell you that you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram, and that's still true. But thanks to a new podcast app, there's now another option for connecting with the show. The app is called Lyceum, and it features hand curation of high-quality educational content that is designed to build learning communities around great podcasts. We're proud to be one of the app's early partner shows, along with others like Harvard's Ministry of Ideas, MIT's Teach Lab, and Google's City of the Future. With a Side of Knowledge has its own multimedia discussion board within the Lyceum app, where listeners can interact with us and each other. Lyceum spelled L-Y-C-E-U-M, is available for both iOS and Android devices. More information at lyceum.fm. Lizzie Peabody and Justin O'Neill are the host and producer, respectively, of Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian. Justin also happens to be a Notre Dame alum, but that's not the reason we invited them to come on this show. In fact, we didn't even know about Justin's ND connection when we asked. No, we reached out to them because we listened to and loved their episode titled The Worst Video Game Ever and immediately decided these were podcasters we had to talk to if we could. Lizzie and Justin were kind enough to take us up on the offer, and thanks to the magic of Zoom, I got to ask them for myself why Atari's E.T. the Extraterrestrial was such an epic fail of a video game. We also talked about their field trip episode, which offers a great reminder that when we say the Smithsonian, we're not just talking about one museum, as well as the surprising history of the spacesuits that allowed Neil Armstrong to take that one giant leap for mankind. They even turned the questions on me at one point. Here's to hoping I did my anteater friend at the Potawatomi Zoo proud. Lizzie Peabody and Justin O'Neill, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thank you. Thanks. Um, th- I feel very privileged to be here. I don't know if you two saw this yet today or not, but I was on the, I guess it's Apple Podcast now. It's not the iTunes store anymore. You are in the rotating slide for Side Door at the top of, of iTunes today, which was, I was, I was like, cool, I'm talking to these folks today. So, what, what I mean, million dollar question, what is Side Door? What is your podcast? I'll give the tagline just real quick, which is basically like everybody goes in through, you know, the front door, but uh, we get to take you in through the side door. So there's we'll introduce you to the curators, historians, scientists, uh, kind of behind the scenes. And that lets people kind of see a different side to to uh, the institution than, you know, people typically get to. Yeah, exactly. We we get to take people where they wouldn't ordinarily get to go and sort of tell a longer story. It's often rooted in something that either an object in the Smithsonian collections or the expertise of a Smithsonian researcher, but we get to tell a full story with an arc, um, which is what makes it particularly exciting to make. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think we can give people a, a good idea of how that concept takes shape. I was introduced to your show via the second episode of your fourth season titled The Worst Video Game Ever. <laughs> uh, it, in the process, I was sad to learn that by the time 
10-year-old me got his Atari 2600 in the late 1980s. Atari was already kind of considered a shell of his former self. I had no idea at the time. Um, but there was, a, there was a direct line between Atari's decline and this one specific game from earlier in the decade. So what was the worst video game ever? E.T. the video game. E.T. the e. extraterrestrial was the worst video game ever. What what went so wrong with it, and what was the impact on Atari kind of in the wake of that? Well, the game itself sucked. Uh, and what was wrong with it was that it, it basically, it was, I don't want to say ill-conceived, but the programmer had essentially an impossible task. He had to create a game in, I think, five weeks. And that is incredibly difficult when you are writing code line by line, as was the case back then. And, um, and so he made the best game he could for the time. But it was really an incident of, it was a case of Atari prioritizing commercial success over the quality of the games as a whole. Right. And that particular game they wanted to have ready in time for Christmas. And they did, but at a very high cost. And it was a question of, you know, Executives not really knowing what they were asking of their, quote, talent, unquote. So I don't think, you know, in in my understanding of it, I don't think they understood that they were necessarily setting um, Howard up to fail and Howard being the coder. And Howard was so young and, you know, full of hubris, as he says himself, that he thought he could do it. And uh, yeah, it was really a case of, I guess, organizational breakdown where you have the bosses so detached from the people who are making the things that it made it easy to ask something that was not in the best interest of the company. And that, I mean, that episode too, it starts in such a memorable way, if I'm remembering right, with you out. Literally, there's kind of this urban legend of <laughs> there's all these Atari games buried in the desert because Atari didn't know what to do with them because no one was buying them. Yeah, and I mean, it's a little unclear whether they buried them, you know, as a as a way to hide their shame or if it was <laughs> right. really just that dumping laws were pretty lax in New Mexico. Right. So it might have just been sort of a convenient offloading space. But yeah, I mean, what a wild thing that that turned out to be true. Right, all these games <laughs> underneath the ground. So... It's obviously, it's an interesting story. It's a great title for an episode. What's, what's the connection to the Smithsonian then? How did that become a story that you all wanted to tell as part of, of Side Door? There's this spot at the National Museum of American History called the Lemelson Center for Innovation. And they kind of do the history of um, big, big American ideas and inventions. And so they had collected a lot of sort of memorabilia and, and, and objects associated with sort of this, uh, the early tech boom in, in kind of the late 70s and early 80s and, and then on into the 90s. You heard a lot of Arthur Demerich in that story. So he was one of those voices kind of really shedding light on on that time period for us. Um, so that was rooted at the Smithsonian and, and, and you know, in the collections here. And then, of course, we had Drew Rabarge, who was the curator who actually collected that object. And that was the first object that he collected. Actually, he's not a curator. He's a collections manager. I believe that's his title. And 
ordinarily he doesn't collect objects, but he's a big gamer and from the time that he was a kid dreamed of opening a video game museum. Mm -hmm. So it seemed particularly apt that this was the the object he went after. But when he heard this was happening, the excavation in the desert, he thought, okay, Smithsonian needs to have a piece of whatever (laughs) comes out of here. So it's really cool after learning so much about the story to see this cartridge that's all gummed up and dirt caked and bashed up. Uh, It really had been through the mill. One of the fun things about working here for me is the Lemelson Center is like an ideas think tank um, associated with one of the museums. And then there's all these other little kind of hidden research centers and, and, you know, just memory banks at the Smithsonian that like it's just shocking the number of resources here. And then every time, even to this day, like I've worked here for three years and, you know, every time we're coming up with a new story, we think like, oh, that thing probably doesn't exist here. And then you Google it, you know, and you're like, <laughs> oh, wait, it does. So uh, the Lemelson Centers is one of those that's like, it's easy to miss, but um, it's just, a, it's it's there and it's a cool resource. It's a bunch of museums. It is the National Zoo and it's research institutes as well. So there are plenty of places that you right. can't even get into as a member of the public that are part of the Smithsonian. Hence a podcast like Side Door. Hence pretty- our existence. <laughs> and that totally makes sense then. And that that brings us, very naturally to episode seven of season four, which was the field trip episode, which you actually take listeners around a a sampling of the different places that people could visit. And this was a special episode because Lizzie, you are the host, but you and Justin were, were both hosting, co-hosting this episode together. Yeah. You can't Uh, see it, but he's shimmying right now. It's a thing I generally (laughs) discourage. So (laughs) Lizzie, like let me out of the producer closet on that one, but she was like, okay, fine. You can talk today. <laughs> to be clear, I don't, one... I don't discourage you talking. I discourage the shimmying. And the two <laughs> kind of come hand in hand. And I'd like to add that I fought hard for a trip to the zoo that day, but it's a little bit off the mall. And we were trying to get it to as many, um, you know, parts of the Smithsonian as we reasonably could that day. So the zoo, you know, the 10, the ten metro stop trip up to the zoo wasn't in the cards right so where all where all did you go that day because it was kind of an eclectic mix i know justin had to um kind of he took one for the team and had the tarantula on his he wanted to hold that tarantula (laughs) he wanted to he did did a good job of selling it that he was taking one for the team yeah um i was apprehensive but yeah so we started at natural history and then we went to american history and then we went to a spot called the Renwick, which is actually a unit of the um, Smithsonian American Art Museum. Uh, and then we had lunch at the National Museum of the American Indian. And then... Then we went to the Enid Haupt Garden, and I briefly fell asleep. Justin walked into a sprinkler. My legs were itchy because I'd <laughs> been eaten by mosquitoes while Lizzie was napping. <laughs> then we went to the Freer Sackler, um, and finally we rode the carousel. Last, but how could you not forget, least. Justin? Yeah, I did forget the carousel. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I mean, I think the the thing that again becomes abundantly clear listening to that is that there is a really wide variety of experiences and things that, based on people's interests, I mean, their odds are there is something there at the Smithsonian for them because it it covers kind of the the American experience in all different ways, shapes, and forms. And that's sort of the promise of Side Door and the fun part about making this podcast is the fact that we get to do kind of learn about like science, history, art, and culture. And even if it's not necessarily like any one of our personal bents or, or 
um, strongest suits, we get to dig in and, and do these deep dives every you know week or two on like a totally different subject that we never really could have anticipated getting into, you know, certainly a couple months ago. Right. But it was also a challenge. I mean, from a production standpoint, it was really fun to go trek around the mall. And it was really fun to have a co-host because as a host, it's just nice to have someone to play off of. And we had a really right. good time. I hope that comes across in the episode. No, it def- <laughs> definitely does. Yeah. But it was challenging because, you know, we do try to tell a story with an arc with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And to do that at every different location was a real challenge to kind of tell a three to five minutes version of a side door story. Of course, there was sort of the overarching journey of the day, but um, it was something that we had never tried before, so we really didn't know how it would go. And I think it turned out pretty well, and we would like to do another one, I think, for this coming season or or something that equally breaks the mold. Yeah, and that that sort of was something that, was the intention of that episode was just do something we hadn't done before and kind of you know push ourselves to to think of side door a little differently and that's something we 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 do try and do um as often as possible and and you know with the understanding of we do things a certain way and people you know like to hear things a certain way but at the same time we want to keep it familiar while keeping it fresh for us yeah i mean i did a i certainly on a you know, a less ambitious scale, but I did one at our our zoo that we have here in South Bend where I had the executive director of the zoo, and we literally just did it as a walking tour of the zoo, and it ended with I got to go in for feeding time for the anteaters while we were, oh. were doing the tour. So it was – I that I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, yes, I can, I can. The justification in terms of the show, it's something different and fun. But it's also like, yeah, I think I would probably just really like to do this, and it seems <laughs> like it would be a good time. Yeah, obviously. Ted, what do what do the anteaters eat? So they can't. I asked. I asked the executive director there. I was like, "So are they actually eating all these insects?" And he said, "We would basically go bankrupt if we tried to fund how many insects these things would really? have to eat." So there are these nutritional pellets that give them all the nutrition of what they the termite. I can't remember everything they ate. It was termites and some other things that they would eat in the wild. But they can basically put them <laughs> into a dish, and then they just stick like this really long tongue out and just kind of. Them in. It was very cool. I love the anteaters. I thought you were going to say ants. <laughs> it's a real sophisticated podcast here, Justin. <laughs> I was going to give you a real answer. <laughs> so you t- you mentioned there your new season. Your fifth season just started this month in March um, with a great episode that dives into the super obvious relationship between NASA's mission in the 60s to put the first people on the moon and the manufacturer of bras and girdles. And I'm wondering, how did Playtex help put Neil Armstrong on the moon? When NASA was charged with the task of putting a man on the moon in under a decade, they not only had the issue of getting a person there, but they also had to keep an astronaut alive in a vacuum for many hours and on the environment of the moon, which is something that they had never had to do before. So they needed to create a suit that was essentially a one-man spacecraft. So they solicited proposals from many contractors they'd worked with in the past who'd made pressure suits or propellers, like titans of aviation. And there was one company that sort of was not like the others, and that was the International Latex Corporation, which was best known for bras and girdles. Um, its brand name was Playtex. And it was begun, the company, I mean, the company itself has a really interesting story that we didn't have t- 
time to get into in so much detail. But the founder, Abram Spinell, was an immigrant from Odessa. And he didn't really have much in the way of formal education, but he was really an entrepreneur. And he got his start manufacturing rubber diaper covers and also these vacuum sealing bags. And he he would sell them alongside vacuum cleaners. Um, You know, like Mm -hmm. the kind you put your sweaters in and you suck all the air out of? Yeah. 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 I mean, that was his thing. That's brilliant, right? And he, yeah, so he went door to door with these things. And and he, he basically just was interested in making anything that could be made out of rubber and latex. And then during World War II, the rubber supply became nationalized. It was rationed because there was a rubber shortage. And he thought, okay, we better branch out and start making some products that we could actually sell to the government in the event of another war. And that is when he hired the head of the industrial division, which started prototyping pressure suits. And like I think they did, they basically, they did pressure suits and helmets for the Air Force. And so they had already kind of put their toe in the water of of this sort of industrial contracting when they did reach out to NASA with their suit prototype. You had these conversations with the seamstresses who actually sewed the suits. And I just wonder, I, I feel like as an interviewer that had to mean something to have the opportunity to tell their story, which I can't imagine has been told very broadly before now. Yeah, I mean, that was a really important part of it for us, was being able to talk with the women who actually made the thing. And um, it hasn't been broadly told. And and I think one of the things that really spoke to me about this story, which was a listener suggestion, by the way, it was... Right, I remember you guys mentioned that. Yeah, Yeah, it was was very cool. It was really cool to get that email. (laughs) And she had seen this as sort of a caption in a museum in Seattle and thought, wait a minute, there must be a bigger story to this. So one of the things that really appealed to me about this story is there is a a kind of a hidden figures aspect of you know the 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 people behind the greatest accomplishments that don't get uh, visibility Mm -hmm. and recognition and I think in some cases it's for doing things that you know typically men are recognized for and are very good at like um, math and physics and this was something that these women were good at it. This was typically women's work. You know, this was stuff mm-hmm. that was not seen as a valid skill for men to acquire. And it wasn't even, it's largely passed down in the home. And I thought it was really cool that, it, you know, to, to highlight a skill that is typically reserved for women as being essential to the success of this project. So it wasn't even like, you know, women can do this too. It was like because women can do this, we were able to go to the moon. Um, So that set it apart for me in a way. And the way we talk about these stories to to a certain extent, it kind of shows how the production on Side Door works is that like typically, you know, Lizzie and I will, in order to sort of keep the hits coming, um, as it were, uh, Lizzie will- (laughs) It's a little self-aggrandizing. Hey, you know. Lizzie will sort of lead the production on one of them, do, you know, the research, write the script, and then we come together for edit meetings uh, and and kind of say, like, fine-tune it from there along with a few other people on our team. But then at the same time, you know, I'm leading production and sort of scripting questions and, and writing script and finding sources for our next story. So that's kind of how our division of labor works, too. So that's why... Uh, like this one, I'm just sort of nodding along because Lizzie was, you know, the the research queen on 
on this Apollo story, and then, you know, for the next one, uh, you'll have to hear what it is. Uh, yeah, we kind of leapfrog in order to stay sane. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I, I was wondering, just kind of in a, it's related to what you were just talking about, but it's in kind of a story discovery sense. Because, like, so when I think about the worst video game ever episode, for instance. And, and maybe it's not the best example because there is something inherently intriguing about an old video game cartridge in, in a national museum where you think, oh, okay, there must be a story behind that. But I'm wondering, are you looking at interesting or focusing on interesting periods, interesting things that have happened in history, and then mapping from that back to the Smithsonian to say like, okay, what what's our connection here that we could do that? Or do you start more typically with an actual artifact and then say, okay, let's play this forward and see how we might unpack how it came to be here. In a word, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we do both in order to sort of, we find stories any way we can. Sometimes too, there's, there's parts of the Smithsonian that we know are interesting and know have sort of like interesting things in them. We just need to sort of scratch beneath the surface to get there. So sometimes we say like, hey, we haven't been to this unit or this um, research center before. Let's go see what's there. Uh, sometimes it's, hey, we heard a thing from a colleague or a listener sent us an email. So pretty much any trick. And, and sometimes uh, to answer, like, for, you kind of guessed it in your question too. We we know that there's something, you know, women's suffrage related, for example, and, and we kind of try right. and find the untold story or the least told story or the most interesting story or one that kind of hits our brand in a unique way. Has has doing this show, and I think, Justin, you, I, I think you hit on this a little bit earlier, but has doing this show changed your perspective at all on working at the Smithsonian, what it means to you or what you what you value most about it or what you view the purpose of it? Has it, has it done anything like that? For me, absolutely. You know, we've learned so much and, and uh, both in terms of how to tell stories, but also like I have so much respect for these uh, curators and historians and research managers that um, really kind of there's so much like just deep knowledge here. It's it's really unbelievable. And everybody, you know, there's so much crossover knowledge too. Like we're working on a story right now where an art curator is working with a natural historian to tell uh, the story of a scientist and explorer who lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s. So like to me, that's that's sort of a, a really good sort of sense of how this place works. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. And also... Roman Mars really hit on it, too, in our feature on 99% Invisible when he ran that episode of um, the video game one for me when he said basically, like, three rules in life. Uh, one of them was, like, make friends at a museum because their version <laughs> of what a museum looks like is very different from what you see as a member of the general public, and, and that's sort right. of what we stake our entire, you know, podcast on. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Lizzie got choked up. I got there. a little emotional listening <laughs> to that. Uh, I agree. I mean, I, I second everything you say, and I feel very grateful to work here. I mean, this is this is an incredible job. What a cool thing to be able. I mean, it is it is my job to learn about wacky, cool, hidden <laughs> stories, and then figure out how to tell them, and then tell them. That is just the coolest job ever. 
So, and, and to Justin's point, working alongside people who are so knowledgeable, who have devoted their entire careers and lives to getting like really deep into one topic and having so many of those people to consult and, and so many resources at our fingertips is just an amazing gift as a storyteller. So that's been just a great privilege to work with with curators and experts and researchers in that way, especially because we're both English majors. You know, we don't know right. that much about <laughs> any one thing. That's so. Um, so it's it's really it's it has opened my eyes to all the Smithsonian has to offer and the breadth of expertise and knowledge. And I've learned a lot from working with Justin as well, because you know I have been on the show not not nearly as long as he has, and and he really has a sense of how to build a story within that 25 minute time frame. So mm-hmm. it's been a great learning experience for me, and and I feel very lucky to work here. And we're lucky to have Lizzie because uh, you know she's a great host and she brings new ideas and makes it fun every day. Aww. I'm going to remind you so, of that at like 4 p.m. when you're like, <laughs> I'm like just stop this is not fun. To me. <laughs> <laughs> so as we wrap up, what can you tell us about what people can expect coming up in season five? Oh, in addition to more great artwork, too. That's one thing I always like to, to point out to, to people. Um, podcasts with really great artwork. Uh, it's it's a cool thing. So people, your website is fun to go check out just for that reason to look at the at the episode artwork as well it's really great shout out to greg fisk yeah it, that's uh nice greg on twitter and i believe instagram and i can't there confirm he is nice yeah i thought you were talking about like works of art as in it's hard oh. to tell podcast like audio stories about works of art which is true it's um, true yes. <laughs> so let's I, I, li- I listened to the the episode with uh koki roberts in the national portrait gallery oh, yeah. and it is an interesting thing to try and, and do when it's someone that's a very, you're talking about something that's so super visual and trying to turn that exclusively into an audio experience is it's a high bar to clear. Oh, yeah. And that kind of brings us to the question that you asked, which is like, what's coming up? Yeah. And one yeah. of those is an art story. I was just sort of listening to description of uh, a 200 year old painting uh, between Lizzie and one of our curators just last night. So that one is coming up, and that was the story I, I just sort of alluded to um, a few minutes ago. And yeah, um, let's see. We've got paintings. We've got squid. We've got <laughs> penguins. Yes. Ocean currents. <laughs> I'm trying to think in my head now. Sorry, you put you put us on the spot. I we have a story I, about I birds coming up. Oh yeah. Uh, there's a few like historical dates that we want to hit this year. I'll just kind of there is a voting rights anniversary coming up that we'll probably mm-hmm. talk about. Oh, and we've got spies. Oh, that's always good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> spies where you least expect them. Yes. And I intend to also get to the zoo this year just because it's like one of those <laughs> things that like you just got to go to the zoo every now and then. So we'll, we'll uh, I'll go find out what anteaters eat for you, Ted. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that. that would, I, would, I would be all over that episode for sure. So in short, we've got more incredible stories of science, history, culture, and art, and um, they will hopefully surprise and delight you. I mean, in short, you have the Smithsonian, which is like right. everything. What else so, do you need? There, there's your What answer. else do you need? <laughs> more Smithsonian, <laughs> I mean, Ted. I, that's what you have coming yeah, at you. I was going to say, I mean, I think if you're listening to this show and the whole idea with this show is that 
we talk to people from all different kinds of disciplines about all different kinds of things. With really the only criteria when people ask me is like, oh, do, do I think we can have an interesting conversation? If you enjoy that kind of thing, I think you will um, absolutely love Side Door because I, there is a kind of a, uh, a shared ethos in, in that sense there. You can tell I'm sitting on a university campus using a word like ethos, just dropping that in there <laughs> in, a, in a podcast. We like it. Uh, yeah. So uh, Lizzie Peabody, Justin O'Neill, thank you so much. Uh, the, the show is Side Door. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I really appreciate you both coming on today. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for having me. It was fun. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.